Good afternoon. I'm Lou Eisen, and this is Ring Talk. If you, first of all, I want to thank my producer, Eric Boyce, who puts up the great graphics and sets all this up. I'm just the fat schlub that comes on and yammers on about the fight. But uh, if you want to thank people for the information on all the uh, great shows we have on Talking Fights, thank Eric and his father, of course, Graham Boyce. So the thing about the graphic that Eric put up, you can look at it. You've got Nelson on the left and Joe Gans on the right. You can see how emaciated Gans is. Gans was in the beginning stages of tuberculosis. And, you know, I was born in 1960, so you got booster shots then and 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 there were vaccines. Not, nothing like that existed back then. A million people in the first century, in the first 10 to 20 years from 1900 to 1920 died in the United States of tuberculosis. There was nothing you can do. And Gans was ravaged and thin to begin with. And what they put him through for this fight, which we're going to get into in a sec, was unbelievable. So at this time, we're talking about September 3rd, uh, 1906 in Goldfield, Nevada. Now, here's what's what I do here usually during the shows. I adjust my uh, adjustable back pad. That's what happens when you get old. So this is an interesting time in American history. And to me, American history is world history. So 1906 is 41 years after the end of the American Civil War. And that was really the one war to talk about the World Wars. But after this American Civil War, there was an area known, an era, excuse me, known as Reconstruction, where they were trying to rebuild the South. And in so doing, because Blacks had been emancipated by Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, that they were trying to fulfill the promise it's one thing to write that blacks were free and have rights, but now African-Americans wanted those rights and, and wanted to be able to exercise them. And they were doing that in Reconstruction. And then it, 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 it blossomed under Grant. And then near the end of Grant's, President Grant's term, and after that, it completely turned. And uh, Reconstruction died. Blacks had no rights. It didn't matter that they were emancipated. They were really nothing more, not nothing more, but in the eyes of racist whites, and that racism still sadly persists to this day, they were looked at as indentured servants. So you have may have been a slave on a plantation, and now instead of being a slave, you were earning a dollar or two a week. So really there was no difference. And the lynchings and the murders and the rapes went on. And... Joe Gans was born into this in 1874. Joe Gans' father was actually a professional baseball player. And, and people would say, well, how can he be a professional baseball player because blacks weren't allowed in baseball? Well, this was before Cap Anson had actually instituted that rule that he didn't want blacks in, in organized baseball. And Gans was born November 25th, 1874. This was nine years after the American Civil War ended. And just to give you an example, um, the, the first black man to ever be a world champion, undisputed world champion of boxing, was a Canadian from Halifax, my hero, George Dixon. Two, I have several boxing heroes. Muhammad Ali, Nikki Ferlano is another of my boxing heroes. But... George Dixon was born in 1875 years after the end of the Civil War. Gans was born nine years after the American Civil War. And Reconstruction was very an ultraviolent period. Uh, his birth name uh, was Joseph Safis Butts. He was born in Baltimore. But his father couldn't look after him when, when they got divorced. And he gave him to a friend, Maria Gant. And the name got misprinted in the paper as Gans, and it sounded better than Gant, and they never uh, corrected it. He, he wasn't able to care for his son, so the foster mother was Maria Jackson Gant, as I mentioned. And she loved Joe like Joe was her, really was her son. And Joe considered her his mother. He adored her. And the only thing he really cared about in his life was her welfare. So... She instilled in him that even though there's racism and even though you're black, you can still overcome that with hard work, determination, courage, and toughness. And he took all these values that his mother 
uh, instilled in him and became the best fighter in the world pound for pound. He was considered by Nat Fleischer, the founder of Ring Magazine, uh, to be the greatest lightweight of all time. Um, this is an argument that goes on all the time. Uh, people will consider Roberto Duran as the greatest lightweight of all time. And I agree. But you also have to have Joe Gans in there and Benny Leonard. The sport changed from then until the time of, of Roberto Duran. But the problem with people who do these top 10 lists online and talk about so-called experts talk about who's the best lightweight of all time. They're only counting fighters from Duran on. They don't know the whole history of the sport. So they're not talking about battling Nelson or an Adwell Gast or Benny Leonard or, or uh, Joe Gans. What's interesting about Duran is he had the same trainer as Benny Leonard, Arcel. And Arcel said Leonard was the greatest lightweight that ever lived. So Arcel was one of the top one or two greatest trainers of all time. He was the first modern trainer in boxing. So if he says Leonard was the best ever, you have to sort of go with that. Now, Gans wanted to fight for the lightweight title. He got a chance against Frank Earn. And when he fought Frank Earn, I believe in Buffalo, Earn, it was an accidental headbutt. Everywhere I read, they say, you know, that Earn, Earn was terrified of him. But Earn was getting... It was a Gans was ahead in the fight, but Ern headbutted him, and it, it was a horrible gash. We've seen those gashes, you know, uh, on various fighters, and the blood was just gushing into Gans' eyes. His corner said, "We can't stop it," and and the doctor there said, "You're going to lose your eye." So Gans did the smart thing and quit. People didn't care being bigoted at the time. Ern said, "I gave him a chance." He, he quit, so he doesn't get another chance. So what does Gans do? Gans had a manager named Al Herford, who, as I said in my upcoming book, Boxing's Greatest Controversies, he belongs in the dung, high on the dung heap of boxing managers. Al Herford was a bigot and a criminal who seri serially abused black fighters physically and especially financially. You know, he stole about 95% of Gans' purses, which is why you know, Gans was indigent for most of his life because Herford just took all his money. And when Gans fired him, he banned Gans and Gans couldn't get a fight. So if Gans was supposed to get five or 10 grand for a fight, he might get a thousand or 2000 if he was lucky. The rest was stolen by Herford, even though there was a contract. And even though they had a written contract that Gans was to get eight or nine grand, could have gone to court, still would have lost. They were all bigoted, nothing you could do about it back then. So Gans knew that he had to get a fight with Ern, but Ern wasn't going to give him another fight. And then he got together with Terry McGovern, which is what I cover in my book. And Gans was friends of McGovern, who was not bigoted. And McGovern's manager, uh, Sam Harris, who was a Broadway producer, uh, got together with Al Herford, and Gans agreed to throw the fight against McGovern. Gans was 5'6", five, 5'7", five, McGovern was 5'2", five, 5'3". Five, Gans was bigger, stronger, heavier much harder hitter, better chin, and um, McGovern dropped him something like eight times in two rounds. It, box, this was 1900. Boxing was banned in Chicago at that time until Joe Lewis came and won the world title in 37, almost 40 years. So, so actually, sorry, it was banned until Dempsey fought Tunney in Chicago, my mistake. So that would have been 26 years. So... He, he admitted he threw the fight, and he got a lot of grief from people, and they call him all sorts of names. The fact that they were racist to begin with, they just added on to the fact that now he was a cheater. And, and Gans didn't want to throw the fight, but his manager assured him, you do that, you get another title fight. He did, but it wasn't for several years after that. And when he fought Franker, and again, he knocked him out in a minute and 20 seconds in Fort Erie, Ontario. Uh, this brings up a major point in the life of Joe Gans and a lot of great fighters, especially black fighters, but all champions, Benny Leonard included. Uh, they had trouble getting fights. Sam Langford, the great Canadian fighter, um, the greatest fighter to never win a world title. A lot of these guys couldn't get fights because they were too good. And it's, you know, stuff that Lomachenko has gone through. Ali went through, guy, or George Foreman, guys that are so good, no one wants to fight them. 
And so what Gans had to do was he would agree not to hurt the guy for the first seven or eight rounds. And after that, you know, the metaphorical hand or figurative handcuffs could come off and Gans could fight and do what he could do best. Gans was a brilliant fighter. He was a great tactician. He was technically brilliant. He, he made no mistakes. He was a fighter without a flaw. He had a lethal right hand. Uh, Gans um, had 147 wins, 101 KOs. So Gans had power to hurt people. And great fighter and uh, just did an, an incredible defensively. He pioneered the shoulder roll, you know, a good 100-and-something years long before Floyd Mayweather ever did it. Gans was very hard to hit with a flush shot, which is why a lot of white fighters such as Nelson were headbutting him and thumbing him and elbowing him, holding him and butting him, stepping on his feet, spitting in his face, kicking him, biting him. They did all that to slow him down. And the referees, of course, let it all go by. So Gans is now the world champion. He's beaten Frank Ernst. Battling Nelson is coming up in the ranks. There's eight years difference. And by the time they fought uh, for their, their uh, title fight, uh, in 1906, Gans is probably past his prime. Uh, you know, he was 31, and Nelson was 24, and Nelson was just entering his prime. Nelson had claimed the world title several years before when he fought Jimmy Britt. And the thing is, Britt wasn't the world champion. Britt was the white world champion. Because people just said, well, that's it. No more Joe Gans. I mean, these bigots who ran the sport thought they could do that. They actually thought we could just get rid of Gans by declaring a white person to be champion. Even, that, even though it has no basis in evidence, you know. And, of course, this goes on all the time now with today's criminal regulatory body. So these two guys are fighting, and Gans is continuing to defend his title. And they signed a fight in Goldfield, Nevada. It was a big fight, and it was one of the biggest fights uh, and one of the first major fights of Tex Rickard's career. Tex Rickard, who died in 1929 from a gangrenous appendix, uh, was the first great promoter in the sport. He prospered by moving to Argentina and making millions off of raising cattle. And he all, Argentinian cattle is still prized to this day, and that's mainly because of Rickard. Moved to, to the Yukon, where he ran a saloon, and took advantage of the gold boom. Didn't go looking for gold, but he, he knew, they knew his saloon was a safe place where all the games are above level, all the casino games, and that you could hide your or store your gold and money with them, and he'd be sure to give it back to you when you wanted it. And he made a fortune doing that. He made it and lost it in gambling himself, then you know, moved down to Goldfield, Nevada, when there was a gold strike there, made money there. He had the only house in Goldfield, Nevada, that had indoor plumbing. So he, he was originally from Texas. He he was a real wildcatter. He really took a lot of risks. He was married with a young daughter, uh, died of tuberculosis, and his wife died shortly after uh, from um, repercussions from the hard childbirth. So Rickard was looking for something in his heart to replace his pain, and that's why he went up to Alaska and he thought, you know, a good way to, to fill a saloon would be fights. Because anytime I see a fight on the street, hundreds of people gathered. So he charged people admittance. And then when he went back to Goldfield, he did that there as well. And so, you know, he really used his head. And he realized that money talks. So just to say this fighter is fighting this fighter, even though the fighters are well known, that's not enough. So he would offer them outrageous amounts of money. And uh, he would display the money in the front of a bank where there were armed guards guarding the, money, uh, guarding the money, which was displayed in gold. So this got people interested and excited uh, in the fight. What's interesting about the Gans fight, they fought three times. Um, Gans won the first fight, which I'm talking about today, by disqualification in the 42nd round. Uh, referee was George Seiler. But the next two fights, he was stopped uh, by, by uh, Nelson. But he was deep in the throes of tuberculosis at that point. On this particular day, on September 3rd, it was a fight to the finish. People listed often as a 45-round fight, but it wasn't really a 45-round fight. It almost lasted 45 rounds, but it wasn't a 45-round fight. It, it uh, ended in the 42nd round.
Nelson was managed by a man named Billy Nolan, who was, Nolan, who was notorious. He was known as the Butch Cassidy of, um, of boxing managers. He was just a swindler, a criminal, a uh, scalawag, um, a bomb um, inveterate gambler, thief, and fit in perfectly in professional boxing at that time. And Gans, who by 1906 had trouble making the, the weight limit, by the way, was 133 for lightweight, not 135 as it is today. And Gans, as he got older, like a lot of us, had trouble making weight. He usually walked around at 147. He was five, six and a half. But what Nolan wanted to do was usually you had to weigh in three times. So you could weigh in at, you know, eight in the morning, 10 in the morning, and maybe 12 in the afternoon. And then you had three or four hours or however long until fight time to rehydrate. He wouldn't allow that, Nolan. Gans had to agree. I mean, Nolan said to him, because you're an N-word, you have to do this. And Gans did, didn't, couldn't say anything. And not only could he not say anything, but his manager, Al Herford, didn't stand up for him at all. He didn't care. All he's thinking about is getting his money. In fact, Herford made so much money off of Gans because he would bet on him to win. But because Gans was so superior in talent, he would say, don't start trying or don't hurt him or knock him out to the eighth or ninth round. So Herford could bet on the exact round Gans would win by knockout and make even a bigger killing with the bookies. So with regards to the weigh-in, Gans had the weigh-in at 12, 1.30, and 3. And the fight was to start between 3.15 and 3.30. And the contract stipulated, you didn't just have to, today a fighter will weigh in in his underwear or wearing a towel. And they'll subtract the weight of the underwear or towel. Back then, Gans had to include the weight of his trunks as an athletic supporter and his shoes when he weighed in. So he had to weigh in at 130 and a quarter pounds, you know, two and two quarter pounds, almost under the well, uh, un, under the lightweight limit. And he said that would be no problem. And, and it wasn't. But when you look at him, he was so thin. And because he weighed in last time, I think around three o'clock and the fight started at 3.30, half an hour was not enough time to rehydrate. If he had weighed in at eight, nine and 10, he would have had five hours in which to have had a meal, digested, and then drink, you know, as much water as he could. Didn't have that. Nelson did. Nelson was allowed to weigh in early in the morning three different times, but it, they were perfunctory weigh-ins. No one even looked at his weight on the scale. He was allowed to do what he wanted because he was white. And the other ridiculous part was Gans, who was the undisputed champion, received 11 grand. And they said, you're a black guy. You have no rights. You're not a person. This is what you get. Take it or leave it. Uh, Nelson, the challenger, got 22500 And when you added various incentives uh, into it and, and money from the uh, gate, uh, not necessarily from the gate, but money from concessions, it came up to almost $32,000. So Gantt had to weigh in, you know, under these strict conditions and... It, it didn't really help him. Also, back then, I mean, heard him. Back then, there were no niceties in the ring. It wasn't like you knock a guy. I mean, today we go nuts when you see a guy get knocked down, and then when he's on the canvas, the other guy hits him, and people go, "Oh my God, you hit him when he was down. You got to disqualify the guy." Never happened back then. They didn't have the rules back then in 1906 that you went to a farthest new, neutral corner or standing eight count. Referee didn't get in between you and say, "Move back." I didn't happen. So throughout the fight, you know, um, Nelson would gouge Gan's eyes with his thumb. He'd hit him with a scissor punch where he used his thumb. He'd hold him in a headlock and headbutt him and use his elbows, forearms. He'd use the laces to rub on his face. He'd spit at him. And as I mentioned last week, Gan's often would bathe in a tub of his own urine to make himself so, smell so wretched that the fighter he was fighting would just have the hardest time not throwing up during the fight. Nelson was just, a, they called him, Jack London, the writer, the abysmal brute. His other nickname was the Durable Dane. But, and Gan's nickname was the Old Master, which he was. But Nelson was just an unrepentant, uh, virulent, anti-black bigot. And 
he hated black fighters. He made no bones about that. Um, he did everything he could to foul them, to demean them verbally uh, outside the ring, in the ring, and physically in the ring. He just treated them like garbage. He thought that was his right. He was born in Copenhagen, Denmark, and then moved to Chicago with uh, to Hedgewich with his uh, parents. You know, when Gans died years later in the 50s, very few active fighters or fighters that knew him showed up because he was genuinely disliked in his life. Not many people liked Gans or Rod Nelson, excuse me. Everyone loved Joe Gans. Even the people that were bigots in the crowd, when they saw what Nelson was doing to him, they were saying, okay, that's enough. That's enough. You know, let the man fight. Come on, we came to see a fight. It's not really entertaining to see Nelson kick him, bite him, gouge him, knee him, headbutt him, elbow him, put him in a headlock, throw him to the canvas. That's not really a fight. And we didn't pay to see that. Come on. The referee, George Seiler, wouldn't do anything. He didn't disqualify uh, Nelson to later on, and he wouldn't. And the reason was, as I said last week, fans back then, most of them were lower class. Uh, there were some upper class people. But regardless of that, they paid a lot of money for tickets. And to disqualify a guy after five, six, seven, ten rounds, the fans would have rioted because to them a fight was 30 or 40 rounds. You know, by the eighth, ninth, tenth round, Gans had committed 150, 200 fouls flagrant fouls. I mean, he came running. He went running at Gans with his head like this right into his face. He would hold his, by his arms and, and, and do that. So George Seiler did nothing because the fans paid to see a fight. And what these guys were getting paid was more than what the fans made in three or four years. So uh, if, if not longer. So a fan would say, I paid this much. It's going to take me Another year to save up for to see a big fight. And then you stop it in six rounds? That's not fair. I want my money back. So they had to let the fight go on uh, a certain dif uh, distance. In the early rounds, it was all Gans. Nelson was a crude fighter. I'm, you, there, there really aren't any fighters today that you can compare them to. You could say Frank the Animal Fletcher from a while ago, but... Nelson didn't have a game plan, didn't really have much style. He didn't jab his way in. He didn't move his head back and forth. He wasn't a stick-and-move fighter. He wasn't even a face-first A guy who comes in, a, a basic slugger. He was a dirty, filthy, evil, uncouth thug. That was battling Nelson. And so he came into the ring, and, you know, he would, he would constantly grab uh, Gans hit him in the kidneys, hit him behind the head, elbow him, headbutt him. The fight's on YouTube, but the film I've seen in the fight, it's so grainy, it's almost unwatchable. Somewhere there has to be a good copy of it, but I haven't found it yet. So Nelson is doing this, and Gans used a similar defense to that of Muhammad Ali. Gans would often move back, right? So he would move back to avoid Nelson's shots, which was easy to do because... Nelson telegraphed all his punches, and he would use the shoulder roll. He would slip, and he would slide. And when Nelson would come in, he'd hit him with a double jab and then come up with a right uppercut, followed by a left hook and a right hand, and he was beating the living hell out of Nelson. You know, eight, nine, ten rounds. Nelson's lips were shredded. His head, his nose was broken. He had bleeding ear. But it didn't matter. Because Nelson almost seemed to get stronger and enjoy the fight more the more he hit him. Nelson would come in and Gans would hit him three, four, five, six shots in a row to the head. And not pity pat punches. Punches where you go, wow, how did he take that? And he took it. He took it. Uh, how he took those shots, I'll never know. But he took them. And, and Gans was pounding his head like a tether ball back and forth. And Nelson just would, you know, bang his gloves together and keep coming forward and keep throwing punches. I know that uh, I would say around twelfth um, round, a very interesting thing happened. Um, Nelson slipped and fell to the canvas. He was down on the canvas, and as I mentioned before, there are no niceties. He didn't have to go to the opposite corner, or whatever. Gans would have been in his right to punch him in the face. He could have done that. But instead, he helped him up. And, and uh, Ify, I'm glad you like this. And 
Gans helped Nelson up with both hands. Nelson accepted it. And then repaid him by grabbing his head and headbutting him. And the thing was, he did knock him down later in the fight. But when, when, um, when Gans knocked him down, he really hurt him. He hit him in the 15th, I believe it was, with the right hand. And during the 15th, Nelson was elbowing him and headbutting him, kneeing him. Gans managed to, to uh, wrangle himself free, create some distance with his jab, come over with a thunderous right hand. And it spun, almost took Nelson's ear off. It spun him around, and he went down on the canvas. And everyone in the arena in Goldfield thought, that's it, he's done. And he got up at the count of two. He couldn't wait to get in. He was almost indignant when a punch missed him. That's how much punishment he could take. And he was seriously hurt at that time. I mean, he was, he was pounded. But, um, you know... He also had Nelson out numerous times during the fight, out in his feet, where Nelson's eyes rolled, and, and you could see that every punch he landed, uh, that Gans was landing over and over and over, was directing him in a different position. So Gans would land the left hook, and he'd hit him, and the left hook would hit him here in the right, and it would spin him around, and then he'd land the right hook and spin him around the other way. Nelson just soaked it all up. Gans couldn't believe it. And the fans couldn't believe it. They were thinking, how much punishment could a man take? And, of course, a guy who fights like that has a short shelf life. While it's there, it's exciting. But in the end, it's the law of diminishing returns. You also have to remember, one reason Nelson could take it was he was 24. He was just coming into his prime. And Gans was 31 in the beginning throes of tuberculosis. And he was just a little bit past his prime. But he was fighting his best. At the end of the 15th round, uh, Nelson's left eye was closed. He was bleeding from both ears and his mouth and his nose, and he had numerous cuts on his face. I mean, the audience, the crowd in attendance thought, you know, he's, he's either going to be knocked out or killed, but he's not leaving here alive. So, as I mentioned before, Nelson was born 1882, June 5th, and seven years younger. Um, Gans did everything he could during that fight, used all of his skill um, to, to defeat Nelson, uh, to outsmart him. And you see on the tape, they clinched quite a bit, but you could see Gans was the bigger man. I almost get a sense that sometimes when they were clinching that Gans could have easily overpowered Nelson, but didn't want to because it wouldn't have been in the fans' favor, they would not have liked that, to see a black man manhandling a white man. So I don't know how much of it was Gans letting Nelson in the fight, you know, giving him a chance to make it look close, or Nelson just being able to have a superhuman ability to absorb punishment and keep coming, because that's what he was doing throughout the fight. And it, it became a war of attrition. How much could, how many fouls could Gans take as opposed to how much actual real punishment could Nelson take? And you're thinking, it was so hot, they said. It, it, was, it was like opening a, a hot oven and trying to breathe with that warm, steamy, hot oven air coming onto you. And that's the, you know, they fought in 120 degrees or whatever it was, 110. And it was very difficult to breathe. And Gans, beginning tuberculosis, was even more difficult for him. You know, he's gulping air. He's, he's drinking water. Back then, you know, a lot of times up until recently, they'd spit the water out, not realizing that you're probably better taking it in because you're dehydrating tremendously during the fight. And also, especially in that heat, you're dehydrating. And you see in between rounds, each fighter has four or five guys fiercely waving towels at them while another person is holding an umbrella over them to protect them from the sun. So Gans is clinching after he's being fouled. He's hitting Nelson uppercuts on the inside. He's pounding him to the belly. But really, he's tearing his face up, his nose up. And Nelson just keeps taking it. He refuses to be beat. He keeps coming after Gans. He figures Gans is seven years older. Yeah, he had to know Gans was a sick man. Gans had the, had the disadvantage of having to weigh in just before the fight. So he was losing weight rapidly. He was losing strength. But still... At times, as the fight went on from the 10th to the 15th to the 20th to the 25th rounds, Gans would have his brief moments, his spurts, where he would show his magic in the ring and he could pull out the round. But the longer the fight went on, the more 
Nelson kept grinding him down. Nelson kept, as I said, using all the foul tactics, digging shots into his kidneys, into his liver, trying to thumb his eyes, trying to gouge his eyes, headbutting him, elbowing him. And referee George Seiler doing nothing about it. And Gans, being the gentleman that he was, didn't complain, knowing that if he complained, it wouldn't have done anything anyways. But even though most of the fans in the audience wanted Gans to lose, eventually his humanity and his refusal to complain under the most adverse of conditions won over a lot of even the most uh, vile, bigoted fans. And they started screaming at the referee to start warning Nelson. And it wasn't until the 15th round, I believe, where referee George Seidler just said to Nelson, tapped him on the shoulder and said, stop the headbutting. You know, just stop it. And, of course, Nelson just ignored him. He didn't care. There were no rules in boxing as far as he was concerned. It was a fight. Today we know a fight as a professional prize fight. To Nelson, it was just beat the man to death, kick him, bite him, headbutt him, thumb him, gouge him, step on his toes, spit on him, knee him in, in the crotch, whatever you can do to win. That was Nelson. And the fight goes on for for uh, 20 rounds, 25 rounds. It keeps going on and on and on. And uh, it was it was difficult because he's a man who's losing strength in the ring. He's losing. He's not in good health, but he's determined to win, and he keeps hanging in there. And they're both wondering what is holding each other up. So we get to the 30th round. You know, and in blazing heat, 35th round, and people are starting to think the fight should be stopped because Nelson's eyes are closed. I mean, he's got to be turned by his corner in the right direction. So he sent, sometimes, you know, when your eyes are closed, you can sense where someone is or someone's moving. And that's basically how he held, how he sensed uh, Gans. Gans would hit him so he knew where the punch was coming from, and he raced after him. But he was just getting beaten to a pulp severely. And because of that, you know, his eyesight was, his eyes were closed. He couldn't see. He's, he's losing a lot of blood, but he, he doesn't care because to him, it's who comes out on top in the end. And while this is going on, when he's clinching with Gans, he's jumping up to headbutt him. You know, he's, he's lacing him with the gloves. He's hitting him on top of the head. You know, he's bringing his knee up to his crotch. He's hitting him low. He'll put him in a headlock and hit him in low three or four times. And as the fight went on and the fans became more unruly and started to scream and threaten the referee, George Seiler, and Nelson, uh, Seiler became a bit more adamant, very reluctantly, albeit, to stop Nelson from doing this. And so the warnings became more and more, you have to stop doing this. this you're, you're losing every round, but you can't keep fouling him. If you keep fouling him, you're going to lose. I'm going to disqualify you. And Nelson just said, there's no way. You're not going to disqualify a white man fighting a black man. Black man has no rights. So therefore, you cannot disqualify him. And he didn't say that, but that was his opinion. And that was everyone's opinion back then. And that's the way the sport was run back then. And so they kept fighting and fighting, you know, 30 rounds, 35, 36, 38th round, you know, 40th round. They come out for the 41st round. They're both exhausted. They can both barely move. Gans is literally dying from tuberculosis. Nelson is beaten to a pulp. How he lived is beyond anyone's knowledge. The fight should have been stopped a long time before, although Nelson just refused to let the fight be stopped. But unlike today, you know, a fighter could do that back then. It wasn't really the referee who could do that. He should have, but he didn't. We get to the 42nd round, and when you watch the tape, it ends quickly. They're fighting in close and they're clinching, and then they move to the side ropes, and they're fighting, and Gans just goes down, rolls over, grabbing his crotch, and Siler waves it off, waves it off, and he disqualifies him, disqualifies Nelson, and people were happy in the audience, but they were shocked. Nelson was furious. Gans didn't really know he was insensible at that time, or insensate, because he'd been hit so hard in the testicles, and he was so exhausted and he's trying to catch his breath. They had to put ice on his testicles to help, you know, to help revive him. It took him a long time to get to his corner and to be helped and carried back to his dressing room. And, and Nelson was furious, but, you know, he couldn't really blame anyone but himself. He fouled 
scanned over 42 rounds, you know, a good five, 600 times at least. I mean, you can't imagine that going on today. But then again, a fight wouldn't last that long today. Um, yes, you're right. I, I feel most of the fight was fought in close with many body exchanges. So when you watch the fight, there's very few times when there's distance between them. And at times it's frustrating because they're holding each other. And as they're holding each other, you know, they're fighting while they're clinching. They're throwing body shots. And Gans was the bigger man and the stronger man. Uh, Nelson was durable and much dirtier, a much dirtier fighter, and everything went with him. But Gans was the stronger man, and his punches wore Nelson down, destroyed Nelson's face, and just savaged Nelson's ribs. The, Nelson, his advantage was the fouls. It was purely the fouls. The fouls, the headbutts, the thumbs, the gouges, stomping on his toes, the elbows, all of that was taking effect, lacing his eyes on, on Gans. But he wasn't complaining like a lot of fighters do today in terms of the ref. He, he knew that was his lot. That was a lot of black fighters back then, and he had to take it. So the fight's over, and Gans wins lying on the canvas after 42 rounds. I think the fight was like 118 minutes or something. Uh, I mean, it was a long, 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 uh, 120 minutes. It was a long fight. And Gans emerges still as the world champion, and, and, but a very scarred world champion because he'd taken such a horrendous beating. Now, a lot of people look at that fight and they say, well, that was the end of Gans. It wasn't. Gans went on and, and fought six more times in a row and beat some all-time greats. He beat Jimmy Britt. Rudy Unholtz. He also beat George Memsick, who was a great fighter from back then, Kid Herman, which you can see great video of it on tape on YouTube, as well as beating Bob Blackburn and Spike Robson. So they fought again uh, two years later, and this time it was in Coleman, California, and Nelson stopped them in 17 rounds. By that time in 1908, just two years before he died, before, before Gans died, uh, Gans, in 1908 was the year George Dixon died, penniless too, at the age of 37. Gans uh, went 17 rounds. He really had tuberculosis then, and he was suffering, and he still managed to go 13 rounds. And, of course, unfortunately for Gans, the referee was the worst, I think, outside of Lawrence Cole in the history of boxing, Jack Welch, who was a house referee for Volgast, and he allowed fighters to, to uh, especially white fighters, to fell black fighters. And any fighter that bought him, bought him off. Welsh was always for sale, uh, just an out-and-out criminal. Uh, Nelson made sure that he paid him enough that he would ignore all the, all the fouls. And uh, he was able to stop him. Gans in the 17th round. It's sad. One of my favorite pictures in boxing, uh, and, and it's uh, in a book by Arne Kane Lang, and it's about boxing. It's about the Nelson Wolgatz fight in boxing and California and San Francisco in that era. It shows the most remarkable boxing photo outside of Ali over Liston that I've ever seen, which is a photo and sitting side by side by side are Joe Gans looking unhappy or serious, Barbados, Joe Walcott, and George Dixon, the first three black men and three of the greatest fighters to ever walk the face of this earth to be world champions. Dixon was the first. Dixon, of course, looks like Looks terrible. He's broke. He's got a white, odd white hat on. His clothes are tattered. Uh, none of them look happy because they've all been ripped off. Dixon was ripped off and mistreated by his uh, criminal-minded uh, manager, Tom O'Rourke, whose sister Dixon married. And uh, they helped out, tried to help out Barbados Joe Walcott, but, but ripped him off. All three of those guys ended up indigent and uh, pretty well homeless. So... After he wins the six fights, after winning his qualification against uh, Nelson, as I said, he, he loses to Nelson. And then he fights him just two months later, and he was knocked out in the 21st round of a fight that was scheduled for 45 rounds. And after that fight, after that fight, he fought once more. That was it. Gans had, he was, in, he was you know, tuberculosis had consumed him. 
he lost a news, he earned a newspaper decision over a guy named Javis White. And this was uh, in New York, March 12, 1909. And, you know, he died in um, 1910. Unfortunately, uh, he had gone for, to, I think, Arizona or somewhere in California to help with his tuberculosis. But he wanted to get home and see his family before he died, and he never made it. He uh, was being transferred to Baltimore and died on the way there. Died on, on uh, in 1910, two years after the great George Dixon died. And uh, it was sad. Um, he, he was a great man. He was a gentleman. There was a statue of him at New York's Madison Square Garden for a long time. And people would rub the knee of the statue when they walked in. Fighters would for good luck. We don't know where that statue is now. Uh, Nelson went on to fight for a long, much longer uh, after winning the title against against him. He went and um, fought and was camped for two more years until he came up against a whirlwind named the Michigan Wildcat, as I covered last week, Ed Wolgast, who beat him to a pulp. And then uh, not too long after that, he took on the power-punching Brit Owen Moran, who knocked him out cold. And Nelson kept fighting and fighting and fighting, uh, winning as much as, losing as much as winning. His last fight was for the world title against the uh, sublime and supreme Freddie Welsh, who won uh, every round in a 10-round fight. The only way Nelson, they said, could win was if he could stop him within 10 rounds. But Welsh was such a great boxer. Nelson was said to have landed only six punches of consequence in 10 rounds. Nelson, after his career, uh, ended up destitute because he was a vile person. He tried different um, uh, businesses. You know how they had, you, when I was a kid, they had the Bozo the Clown uh, punching, not a punching bag, but that thing that stood on the ground, you push it and it would come back. They had Bozo the Clown, different ones. Well, he had one and it was supposed to be a black person that you could hit and promoting racial violence towards black people. And he, he had thousands of them made and sold none. And then he had some, since it was the Second World War, made of Kaiser Wilhelm, sold none. And he went into various businesses, but he was broke. They all went under. Uh, he was a thoroughly dislikable person. Uh, he was married, and the woman divorced him after he, you know, attacked her and beaten her up. He was indigent. Uh, this was a person who, I mean, he was nuts, you know, when Dempsey fought Willard. It was such a hot day in Toledo, they had tubs of lemonade that they were going to make a fortune off of. And when they were going to get it ready to bottle the morning of the fight, there was a nude battling Nelson bathing in the lemonade. I mean, no manners, just a vile thug. You know, it's interesting how throughout boxing history, uh, racist white fighters and managers and media have always... Um, called Afro-American fighters savages and thugs. But when you look at it, it's always the white fighters and managers and media that turned out to be more savage, more thuggish, and more vicious and vile towards their fellow human beings than any African-American fighter that anyone could ever name in the history of the sport of boxing. So he lived, I believe, until... I have it in my records here. Uh... He lived until, I believe, 1954, and he, he um, yeah, he, he died indigent. Very few people showed up at Nelson's uh, funeral. No one liked him. He was a, a thoroughly disliked character, and you can see why. He actually, uh, a couple of years after beating Gans, went to Gans Hotel in Baltimore to see if he could borrow money from him. And just the gall, the unmitigated gall of someone doing that to you. And Gans met him and, and gave him money. He was polite to him. And I don't know if that was Gans being a gentleman, which he was, or Gans just saying, this is the way the times are. This is a white guy. I have a hotel. Uh, I cannot turn him away. If I turn him away, I'll, I could be attacked. And uh, so I don't want to do that. And he helped him out. As I said, Nelson died February 7th, 1954 in Chicago. He had full-on dementia. Sad thing is that uh, Nelson or Gans was, I think, 37 when he died in 1910. 
and just a young man. And it, things like that break my heart, especially when George Dixon died in 1908, because it, he was also 37, 38. They died at ages. If you think about it, I was born in 1960. So if they could have lived another 20, 30 years, we could have had them on tape speaking. We could have seen their the reaction, we could have heard their voice, we could have really got to know them as people, which is matters so much in how you look at a particular fighter. Um, I'm sorry to be rambling on here about that, but this was an epic fight, a uh, 42 round fight. There were fights that lasted longer than that, but this fight, you know, it was after this fight where Tex Rickard said, because of all the violence in the fight, there were fights in the audience, uh, blacks were attacked and killed uh all throughout america after this fight that rickard said i'll never promote another mixed fight again but of course four years later he did jack johnson jim jeffries which was an epic mismatch in which johnson destroyed him in 15 rounds easily johnson could have taken him out in the first round but he didn't um joe gans has to be when you rate the greatest fighters of all time pound for pound People will now say Sugar Ray Robinson, Willie Pat, Muhammad Ali, Floyd Mayweather. Gans has to be up there. Uh, as I said earlier at the beginning of the broadcast, most historians today, they don't include guys from, from that era. They don't know anything about them. They don't know how skilled they were. Where do you think all these moves and the shoulder roll and all the, you know, and Lomachenko stuff, where do you think that came from? I didn't just appear out of the ether. That came from fighters that came before them that perfected these techniques. And Joe Gans was truly a fighter without a flaw. He was a master. You know, you put him in today's world and it's unlikely he ever loses. Back then he had to put up with racism, getting ripped off for his purses. Uh, he had to put up with possibly being attacked by fans. Fighters that he fought would often spit in his face during the referee's instructions or when they went to sign contracts. And, and Gans would never change his expression. He would never give in. He would never attack back. That wasn't his nature. And it wouldn't have been safe for him to do it anyways. September 3rd, 1906. If you get a chance, as I always say, watch it on YouTube. Try to find a good version of it. You can find colorized version of it where you can see two or three minutes of it. Uh, you can see Gans' artistry. Watch Gans fight Kid Herman. I mean, the way he's on the ropes, even when he loses on purpose to Terry McGovern, the way he's slipping shots and sliding and catching them with his elbows and his reach, he knew how to use that jab. He knew how to bring that hand back. You know, he'd throw the right hand. And when he threw the right hand, his left would be up. So if, if he missed and you came over for a left hook, he'd move it over and block it. Right hook, he'd move it over and block it. He was perfectly trained. He knew what he was doing at all times. There was no wasted motion in the ring. He had the best ring geography and, and field of vision in the ring of any fighter that ever lived. He knew exactly where he was in, in, in proportion to and ratio to, excuse me, to his opponent and to where the ropes were. So he always knew where he was. He always knew the distance. He was a master of distance and range, which made him so difficult to hit. You have to remember, he didn't die of dementia. He had his faculties about him because he never got hit that often. What he died of was from tuberculosis, unfortunately, which was a scourge that took over a million lives. So at, at that in that time period, this was a great fight. Nelson, whom as you can tell, I don't particularly like, still is in the Hall of Fame. He was the world lightweight champion. He took phenomenal beatings, which in the end shortened his life. And he lived a, long, a large part of the last years of his life, broke, homeless, and it with supreme dementia because of the style he fought. Gans went out, is looked on in history as one of the top one or two greatest fighters that ever lived. And real boxing historians, the great ones, like my dear friend, Don Majeski, who's just recovering from open heart surgery. I love you, Don. I hope you get better soon. And, and Thomas Hauser and Douglas Fisher and all, all these other uh, people that I like, William Detloff, uh, Nigel Collins, they know the real history of boxing. So you can talk to them. You can go online, ask them about this fight. You can go online and get me and ask me about this fight. This is one of the all-time great spectacular fights in boxing history. You have to go on YouTube, regardless of the quality of the film, and watch Joe Gans and get as much about Joe Gans as you possibly can. My friend, dear friend, who just passed away, William 
uh, Gildea wrote this book, The Longest Fight, about the Gans-Nelson fight. That's Joe Gans wearing his, his favorite color suit, green. He's got a gold belt uh, chain there attached to a watch. He had a diamond stick pin. He was a real dude. He dressed well, didn't have much money because he got ripped off. He was a terrible gambler. He'd waste his money gambling. But he always had great clothes. He was what we call a real sport, a true world champion, an all-time great, and a person who deserves to be uh, remembered. Uh, there have been many great books on him. Uh, my dear friend and another brilliant boxing historian, Colleen Acock, wrote a great book on, on Gans and also on the great black fighters. And check out her books because they're well worth reading. My name's Lou Eisen. I really hope you enjoyed this show. But more than that, I hope you get excited about boxing and a lot of these fights um, from back then. Um, and yes, just before I sign off, Hyphy, you're right. All those fights where he had to make such low weights did take a toll on his body. And it probably did make him susceptible uh, to, to tuberculosis because it weakened his immune system. We don't know that for sure. You know, but you're 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 very right. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the lemonade story. I want to thank you, Ivy, for if I'm pronouncing hopefully I'm pronouncing your name correctly from um, enjoying this. This is where boxing began. You can't be great and love the sport today if you don't know the history of it. And that's why I'm always mentioning these other uh, these great boxing, not other, but these great boxing historians that are well worth reading. Ring Magazine, Ringside Seat Magazine, which is great. Please get involved in the sport. Watch these podcasts, you know, on, on um, talking fights. You're not only going to learn about boxing like you did with Joe Gans and Bally Nelson. You're going to learn about the social and cultural history and political history of Canada, the United States, and every country around the world. And that, to me, is what matters most. I hope you enjoyed the show today. My name's Lou Eisen. Thank you watching Ring Talk, and we're going to see you back here next Sunday at the same time. Take care. Have a great week.